Welcome back, Upset Patterns listeners. My name is Will Compernal. My guest today is Vernon Smith of Chapman University and winner of the 2002 Nobel Prize in Economics, quote, for having established laboratory experiments as a tool in empirical economic analysis, especially in the study of alternative market mechanisms. Vernon, thank you for coming on. Well, I'm happy to be here. So you're best known for your work in what is called experimental economics. So can you give a brief description of what experimental economic means and what are some examples of experiments that illustrate what we typically think of as economic behavior? Well, there's there's kind of two broad classes of uh, experiments. That is, there's there's a, a lot of experiments, and in fact, experimental economics began with the study of markets. Oh, and then those experiments go back to the late 1950s and 1960s, so that's some time ago. And they ultimately led to all kinds of real-world applications in electric power markets, natural gas markets, and and so on. Then in the 80s and 90s, people started to look at some two-person games and and that uh, really the results there were amazing because the markets show that people operate uh, in a very self-interested manner. That, that is the neoclassical economic revolution that introduced marginal analysis and brought us um, the maximum utility calculus that worked very well in markets and it failed miserably in these uh, two-person uh, one-shot games. So that's, you know, that that I think gives you a, roughly what's happened in experimental economics. So you mentioned the, the neoclassical framework and there's this idea of uh, homo economicus or max U and um, it's very popular in contemporary economics discourse to kind of reduce human behavior to this idea that we're almost robotic, rationally self-interested, utility maximizers, and even things that appear to be selfless or altruistic, like justice or cooperation, are still done through this lens of, you know, it being in our own self-interest. But there are examples of experiments that you've done that show that that model is kind of an incomplete understanding of human behavior. So what are some experiments you've done that show that there's something more to human nature than uh, the homo economicus framework? Well, the experiments that we started doing in, uh, in the 80s and 90s involve what we call trust games. And in the tr- trust games, you have two people... Uh, matched at random uh, in a group that you've been recruited to the laboratory. For example, there might be, you might have recruited 12 people. So you're going to form six pairs randomly out of that. And one of the pairs uh, is the first mover and the other is a second mover. And to give you an example, in one of these trust, so-called trust games, and we don't call that, call them trust games, uh, the, with the subject, so the first person can can move right. They each get ten dollars, and the experiment is over. Okay, or one can pass to two, and if one passes to two, 
the stakes are are doubled from twenty dollars, and that kind of represents some sort of synergy between these two individuals. You see, one can move right, and and he takes uh, twenty five, fifteen dollars, and twenty five. So. Person one gets a 50% increase by that choice. Person two, who moves right, gets a 150% increase. Or two can play down and take all the money. Well, the analysis of that game by backward induction with utility, utility uh, maximizing a hypothesis where each person only is concerned with his own uh, person, too, will just take all the money. So one should never pass to him. <clears throat> well, and you just play this once. You see, if you repeated it, it could be very different, but we're interested in the one-shot game. Well, uh, what was astonishing is half the person, person ones play down and two-thirds to three-quarters of the person twos play right. They don't take all the money. So this, you see, it completely contradicts the uh, years of studies of, of market supply and demand and auctions in which choosing in your strict interest to maximize your own reward uh, drives all of those results. And here, the case where it, it decisively uh, falsifies uh, that. So that, 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 that's probably one of the most widely studied games, the trust games, that kind of illustrates this contradiction. And because it's a one-shot game, um, you know, it's not like uh, two people who live in the same town and they're engaging in this transaction knowing that they could see each other later in the day. And so they're not socialized to, uh, to be nice to each other. Because it's a one-shot game and it's anonymous, um, it's really hard to frame those results in the idea of being in a rational self-interest. Right. And, of course, our whole idea in, in designing that particular game was we thought, well, <clears throat> people have shown uh, surprising trusting behavior in <clears throat> some of the first uh, trust games that were, that were reported. And so we were taking an extreme case, and the idea was that we would really make it very difficult for the person wants to move down. And in fact, they defy that prediction. And the twos defy the prediction that they'll take all the money. And, and, I, and now how did, how did uh, experimentalists and behavioral economists react to that? Well, there were kind of two streams of research that followed. One stream said, oh, well, it isn't just your your own payoff that is in your utility function, the other person's payoff is in the utility function also. So uh, we got then the idea of what was called social preferences, okay, as, as, as a fix of, of, of that. And, <clears throat> well, you see, that leaves a whole lot of questions uh, 
open. For one thing, it's too easy a fix. You know, when you have that kind of major contradiction, you really need to go back and rethink everything. And just going in there and you see, see this reaction preserved maximization. It, it, uh, people didn't have to face up to what was happening to, to utility maximization model. They just changed the utility function so it worked. This is after finding, and of course no one predicted this. This is after finding out what people do. And, and that turned out to have, uh, I think, a lot of unsatisfactory features. For one thing, you, you uh, could quickly show that intentions matter. For example, if you do the same game and one has no uh, right move he can make, he has to, suppose one has to pass to two. And then two's payoffs are just the same as in the first game I described. Well, now a lot more people uh, play down. It just, in fact, it flips over. Instead of two-thirds to three-quarters right and one-third to one-quarter down, it just flips the other way. So people, it's important that the second mover see what the one, uh, the first mover gave up. So actions not taken influence how you read the meaning of the action taken. And you see, so these kinds of considerations were not part of the thinking. They were not part of the mental model that, that people used. It seems like then there is something needed to fill in the gaps. Like you said, when there's something that appears to be not through uh, utility maximization, well, you just need to redefine the utility function. But I think, you know, to switch gears a little bit, um, Adam Smith kind of had a, a richer view of how people interact in, in personal settings. And so, you know, for those who don't know, Adam Smith was an 18th century Scottish economist and moral philosopher. And one of his books, Wealth of Nations, is considered the founding text of modern economic analysis. And a lot of times it is perceived to view human behavior through this idea of rational self-interest or the virtue of prudence. Um, But he has a different view of human nature in his other book, Theory of Moral Sentiments. So I want to start with uh, a, a quote that he starts off the book with. However selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. And this is a very different view of human behavior than the homo economicus model. So give a little bit of background about what Smith sees as the framework for human behavior uh, and this idea of, of what he calls fellow feeling or sympathy. Yes, it's, uh, it's our, his whole approach is to note that in our um, more uh, familiar groupings of family, extended family, friends, neighbors, this sort of thing, we, we learn to follow rules that basically, as he puts it, rules that humble the arrogance of our self-love and bring it down to what other people will go along with. He uses the phrase, go along with, 31 times in the book. Okay, he's talking about what 
people, what mankind, what men uh, can or cannot, can, cannot go along with. And so from our earliest experiences, other people, and growing up, other people are marking their uh, approval or disapproval of our actions. And so as a result, we, we learn to internalize rules. And those, those rules are other regarding. That is, we take into account the interest of our friends and neighbors in order to live in harmony with them. That doesn't mean we're not self-interested. And in fact, implicit is, and, and you know, Smith in both of his books, in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, he vigorously defends the argument that we are self-interested. But the point is, we learn to uh, control that self-interest in our, in our uh, dealings with our neighbors. And moreover, if you think about it, if you're not, if you don't assume that everyone is self-interested, then you, there's no way you have of knowing when an action you take uh, it hurts or benefits someone else. You see, if, see if I take an action that benefits me, gives me more, and hurts you, it takes away from you. I immediately know that you're hurt. And that I'm and that I benefit. Why? How do I? How do I know that? It's because I implicitly assume that you're self-interested, and so am I. So <laughs> that's the remarkable thing. You see, there is there is no compromise whatsoever. Uh, and Adam Smith, with the proposition that we are all self-interested. And in fact, that common knowledge of the self-interest we need, we use, we need that information to uh, be sensitive to the hurts and benefits of our actions on others. Okay, so we we tend to take actions that are friendly, that are beneficial to others, and not and avoid hurtful actions. Well, that implicitly assumes uh, others are self-interested. A subtle and an interesting point, you see, that was has been missed. And he has this idea, you say, that people know that the others are self-interested, and it's because you put, the, put yourself in their shoes. There's this idea of fellow feeling. And he gives some really powerful examples in Theory of Moral Sentiments that show our ability to mechanically put ourselves in other people's shoes, even when it's very clear that there's no self-love that comes out of it. It's just something innate in us that we do. So he talks about when we view someone about to be hit, we kind of shrink back. Or we see a dancer on the slack rope trying to get their balance, and we writhe and twist. You see beggars on the street, and you feel their ulcers and sores and itch. And you think, um, again, if you watch a movie, and there are obviously fictional characters, and yet you relate to them, and there is no reason for, you know, these fictional characters won't benefit by you from you crying for them. But so there is this mechanism where we are innately putting ourselves in the shoes of others, and even if our feelings aren't a complete one-to-one overlap with how strong their feelings are, there's something in us that relates to other people. Yes, and that's critical in understanding human conduct, how we conduct ourselves, 
in both markets and our personal uh, relationships with others. You, now you see in markets, <clears throat> uh, in, in markets, uh, we have third-party enforcement of, uh, of of rules. You see, we have third-party enforcement that thou shalt not steal. Okay, and or or and you can't misrepresent products and all that sort of thing. So that means in our, in markets, we're less critically dependent upon uh, trust trustworthy enough relationships like we have among our neighbors. And that doesn't mean that those elements aren't still there. They're just much much reduced. And and also when we yeah, you know, you do a uh, a favor for your friend, and often your friend will say, "Hey, thanks a lot. I owe you one." Well, no one says that in a market. I don't owe you anything because you paid me. <laughs> you you came in the store, you selected something to buy, and you paid me. So the 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 uh, contract is discharged then. And and you see that's an important difference between these two types of of interactions, and in in both of them, Smith would say we are strictly self-interested, but in our day-to-day relationships with with others in ordinary social uh, commerce, we uh, we learn to humble this this self-interest and bring it down to what other people can accept and that's the way we live in harmony you see and and you find in smith you see much different language than people use today you know the the notion that of of, of harmony of resonance you see and this comes out of of the sympathetic capacity for fellow feeling that we that we gradually learn after about age five or six. See, up to age five or six, in that trust game, kids take all the money. They don't, they don't hesitate. <laughs> they haven't been socialized. And, uh, and then gradually, though, and in fact, a lot of these games, like the trust games, have been done with people of, di- of different age. Okay, six, eight, twelve, 16, and, and so on up. And what you get is just a steady increase in both trusting and trustworthy behavior with age. So, it, it, it flattens out around, uh, you know, when when people are in their, say, in, the, uh, in their 20s, roughly, and maybe fairly stable after that. So so it's a maturation process. And, and, and Smith articulates that in great detail in the Thurial Moral Sentiments. Regrettably, it didn't have any impact on modern thinking, and the thinking of economists. And going back to the homo economicus model, um, sometimes purely utilitarian thinkers will put something like justice into the utility function. So we follow the rules and we follow justice because it benefits ourselves in the end. But I want to read one other uh, of my favorite quotes from Theory of Moral Sentiments early on, which is that, Okay. Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely, or to be that thing which is the natural and proper object of love. And I think that's so wonderfully powerful in the sense that 
we don't just want the utility, but we want to be the proper beneficiaries of the utility. So if you cheat on a test and get a good grade, you're not going to feel as good as if you actually followed the rules and studied hard because you know that you are not deserving of it. Um, and so it's not only praise that you want, to, but to be worthy of the praise. Well, uh, Smith sees our motivation, our motivation as one in which we seek praise and praiseworthiness. But particularly the important thing is praiseworthiness and, and, and not just praise, because a vain person may be happy with praise, but the, uh, and his idea is, but no one feels comfortable living with receiving praise but not being feeling worthy of that praise. But even more important, we avoid blame and blameworthiness, you see. So those two go together, and they emphasize Smith's important distinction between the, between gains and losses. The, there's an ace, fundamental asymmetry between gains and the gain domain and the loss domain. Now that is prominent in in modern uh, psychology and and economic psychology. The uh, Kahneman and Tversky. Danny Kahneman shared the Nobel Prize with me in 2002, and an important part of Danny's work was showing that in games uh, in which Decisions by individual under uncertainty, there's a, uh, <clears throat> there's a very different behavior for gains than for losses. We very much want to avoid, he shows, they showed, and their research shows that, that we are very concerned to avoid losses much more than we are concerned to achieve gains. But that principle is is in uh, Adam Smith, but it, but it never, you, you don't see in the psychology literature, do you, uh, d- nowhere do you see Adam Smith being cited because they didn't know about it. This, this is something that it, it, it didn't get lost, it just was never found, okay? This is something that was, that was never uh, was transmitted from the 18th century down into the 20th century to influence thought. It just shows how something, a really important principle, can get lost. And uh, in this case, because it, it, it appears to be a truth that can't be avoided, we discovered it again. <laughs> and the interesting, the powerful thing, though, about Smith is not just that he articulated this principle, but he derived it from more fundamental considerations. He talks about the asymmetry between our joy and our sorrow. And he argues that anyone who's relatively comfortable has much to lose relative to the amount that he can gain from that position. And that... And that people are very important, are very importantly oriented to avoiding 
loss. And in figuring out, in kind of judging one's own behavior to see whether it's proper, this idea of the impartial spectator is an interesting mechanism um, because there's sometimes a judge looking at us to enforce uh, doing things that are right. But oftentimes, let's say if you are considering cheating on a test or you find someone's wallet on the street and no one is around, do you decide to return it? But the impartial spectator is this concept that he comes up with to enforce um, propriety and and justice. Uh, yes, it's kind of a metaphor for the mechanisms that we learn in rule following that that keeps us on the straight and narrow track. And and he said, and an important part of that mechanism is what uh, Smith calls self command. You see, when no one can know, we have to have some sort of manage, uh, capacity to manage, manage ourselves. And, and, and particularly in this distinction between praiseworthy and praise, you see, sometimes in, in many situations, only we can know whether the praise is justified. And so that, this is the mechanism he used to, to, to sort of articulate this very strong tendency we we have to uh, to ingest rules of a proper social uh, uh, behavior in uh, our relationships with with others. If Adam Smith gives a richer understanding of the foundations for human behavior, are there ways that you have integrated his views into your experiments, or are his writings kind of just a way to supplement uh, what the utility maximization can explain? No, I think in the trust games, for example, what I and my co-author Bart Wilson have been able to do is to really uh, ex- explain and understand these decisions in a way that we were never able to before. And these come from from summary propositions uh, in Adam Smith. All of this framework that you and I have been discussing are encapsulated in some fundamental propositions in Adam Smith. For example, one one of his propositions, and we call it Beneficence Proposition 1, he says that Actions of a beneficent tendency that are <clears throat> intentional, he says properly motivated. Well, he, he means by that they're intentional. Alone deserve reward, and they deserve reward because of the gratitude we feel. So he articulates, you see, a proposition there that enables you to understand why in the trust game, persons one person ones might pass to two, and certainly why persons twos cooperate rather than taking all the money, because they, as he puts it, they, the first person didn't have to pass to two. They had an alternative outcome that, that they could have chosen. They deliberately passed to two and exposed themselves to the possibility all the money would be taken. And so twos feel a natural gratitude for that. And how do you reward that gratitude? You reward the gratitude by, by uh, playing right and, giving, uh, 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 and, getting, and producing that cooperative outcome in which they both benefit. So you, 
And, and you can also understand why more twos uh, choose to cooperate than ones who offer to cooperate because the ones face some uncertainty about the kind of person they're matched with. Twos feel no uncertainty at all because they see what one did. So, so you see, you can sort of use Adam Smith's framework of thinking to understand all of the de- decisions that people are making in that, in that game and then do variations on it. For example, Smith says in Beneficence Proposition 2, Beneficence, beneficence is always free. It cannot be extorted. And therefore, want of beneficence, that is simply the failure to take an act of beneficent, make an act of uh, a beneficent choice when you could have, is not anything that people will uh, resent and want to punish because it involves no real evil. In other words, it's sort of people's respected right not to show beneficence if they don't feel like it. Well... If you modify that game that I talked about, and suppose that suppose that one decides not to offer cooperation and to move right and take the ten dollars, to to do that, one has to pass to two, and then two chooses the ten ten, or at a cost to himself, punishes that behavior. In other words, chooses say eight eight dollars for each of of them. Well, if you do that game, nobody does that. People don't. People don't feel <laughs> that uh, the act of of not choosing to offer. I mean, the act of choosing not to offer cooperation is not something that uh, deserves punishment. On the other hand, another proposition in Adam Smith predicts that in the trust game that if two moves down, take the money and the action has to go back to person one, and one has an opportunity to uh, to punish two for that act, then people people do feel that resentment and will have a tendency uh, to punish. And if you do that experiment, indeed, that's exactly what people do. You get lots of people who, at a great cost to themselves, will punish uh, defection on an offer to cooperate. So... It's a rich way of of thinking in terms of personal interactions, and these two-person games are just simply one way of studying uh, personal interactions. On the surface, uh, some people see a contradiction between the view of human nature uh, in the wealth of nations and that in the theory of moral sentiments. Some people have even theorized that you know, maybe he was a, a different guy writing, and do they are they consistent with each other? It was some Germans even call it Das Adam Smith Problem, which for those who don't speak German translates to the Adam Smith problem. Um, so how can we reconcile the two views of human nature seen in these books, uh, one based largely on the virtue of prudence, and uh, you could say in theory of moral sentiments based on the virtue of temperance? Can they exist simultaneously? Yes. And uh, people are just self in, uh, self-interested in markets as they are in uh, their day-to-day relationships with others. But the point is, the self-interest is is in, that people that characterize people in our social relationships 
are modified by the rules that we learn to follow because we have this capacity for sympathetic fellow feeling. And this is what enables us to live in harmony with our with our neighbors. And but knowledge that that everyone common knowledge that everyone is self-interested is essential in both uh, in both worlds and in both of, of Smith's books. But there is no contribution because or, or contradiction because. As Smith says, we're all self-interested, but we cannot look mankind in the face and avow that we use that principle in all of our decision-making. <laughs> so it's it's just a really neat way of explaining behavior in both circumstances. And, of course, we don't have third-party enforcement of of what you might call the rule of law in dealing with our neighbors. And so we learn to enforce that ourselves by punishing actions that are hurtful, that other people deliberately impose on us, and rewarding actions that that are a benefit to us because of the gratitude we feel. So, so his model and way of thinking kind of gives you a seamless connection between the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. Vernon, thank you very much for coming on the program. Well, thank you, Will. It's been very pleasant. I appreciate it, and you have a good day. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Comperl, recorded in New York, New York, at the Metropolitan New York Library Council. My guest today was Vernon Smith of Chapman University. If you like this episode, consider rating us on iTunes or sharing with your friends and family and email us at upsetpatterns at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash upsetpatterns.